This week's reading is going to come from the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel, and it is, uh, it is a bit of a long reading. There's 22 verses, so before I ask everybody to stand, if you have any um, physical ailment or you don't feel up to standing, please don't feel obligated to. But if you're able, if you could join me and stand for the reading of God's word, we'll get started. This is the word of the Lord to his people. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so they could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among your people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. 
And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your, your word, Lord, that you give us um, even harder words like this that we can consider, that we can consider what it means for us that you are a holy God who demands, who demands righteousness. And Father, as we spend the next few minutes considering the work of the ark and the work of your spirit among your people, we pray that we would come away with a deeper understanding of just how beautiful you are. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You know, if you, uh, if you take the time to read the liturgy guide or you read our weekly email, you know that the uh, title is called The Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I got a lot of heat for that title this week. A lot of people made fun of me for that title. You know, Janie, my wife, is a little younger than I am, and she likes to tease me. She says, honey, a lot of people like to visit the 80s, but you just live there. <laughs> but I'm a child of the 80s, so as I was studying this week, the first thing I kept thinking of all the time was Raiders of the Lost Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones. It's a classic, it's classic 80s cinema, right? And, and the storyline actually involves the Ark that we're reading about today. It's talking about the Ark of God, um, the movie itself takes place in pre-World War II, right before the world, uh, world War II breaks out, and uh, the setting is that the Nazis are desperately trying to find the Ark of God. And on the U.S. side, they enlist the help of one Indiana Jones to try and get the Ark before the Nazis do. You know, this is interesting. This is right out of the movie. The Nazis actually say the army that carries the Ark before it into battle would be invincible. That sounds familiar, right? That's right out of 1 Samuel 4 that we read today. But Hollywood has a way of shaping its own narrative of things. And when they do finally find the Ark in the movie, Indiana Jones is there with his ex-girlfriend. The Nazis are there. They open up the Ark, and everything just goes sideways. The power of God pops out like a jack-in-the-box. He's melting people's faces off. There's lightning bolts shooting out of people's eyeballs. All kinds of nonsense. And none of that happens with the Ark in real life. Many other amazing things are going to happen. As we study this book over the next few weeks, we're going to see that God does an amazing work and gives a testimony to his power and his glory through the ark, but he never melts anybody's faces off, so you can be encouraged by that. What's ironic, though, about 1 Samuel 4 is that it's not the quote-unquote bad guys who are trying to find the ark and use it for their own plans. It's actually God's own people. If you recall, when we left off last, uh, last week, we, were, we saw that the Lord had appeared at Shiloh, and he spoke to a young man named Samuel, raising him up as a prophet. And we also heard repeatedly in the last two chapters that God was pronouncing that he was going to perform judgment on the wicked priests that were taking advantage of his people. In this week's reading, we're also going to see that God's going to begin to deal with the sins of his people also. It's a sudden change in subject that we find in chapter 4 here. As we start the reading, we find that battle lines are being drawn between the Israelites and one of their longtime enemies, the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are a source of constant conflict for the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. And as we read this chapter and we unpack it, at first glance, it could seem like this chapter has nothing but bad news in it. But I think when we get behind the scenes and see what God's up to, what we're going to find is that because God is holy... He shows his people love and grace even in the midst of discipline. And because of that, we can know that he is and he will always be with us. So we're going to take a look at what that means in three points like good Presbyterians. 
So let's get started. You know, in the first 11 verses of this, of this chapter, God shows us that he does take his holiness seriously. And the way that we see that is through how he begins to deal with the sins of the nation of Israel. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 20, and chapter 4, verse 1, the first, read, uh, the first verse that we read this afternoon, serve as a reminder of the effect of prolonged sin on God's people. 3.20 says that all Israel knew that Samuel was a prophet. And 4.1 begins a reading today by saying, his word came to all of Israel. The point that the author of this is giving us is that the people of Israel had God's word in their midst, but they ignored it. In the third verse of this chapter, we see the Israelites enter into their first skirmish with the Philistines and they experience defeat. And you know, it's funny, they asked the right question right out the gate. They knew that defeat and victory always came at the hand of the Lord. And so the first thing that they ask is, why has, the God, has, why has the Lord defeated us? The problem, though, is that I don't think that they're interested in hearing the real answer. If they had, they would remember that all throughout their history with God, all the way back to the beginning of Exodus, that he warned them that if they disobeyed him, that they would suffer at the hands of their enemies, and that would be a consequence for their disobedience. But they decide that they'll bring the ark into battle anyways. And so they go and they send for the ark and they bring it into into battle saying, let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. You see, they were convinced that if they brought the ark, the thing that represented God to them into battle, that they could effectively force God's hand and that he would fight their battle for them and they would win. But as we read in verses 10 and 11, that doesn't happen. They don't just suffer a defeat. What they suffer is an all-out slaughter. The wicked sons of Eli, the priest, are killed, and the ark is captured. The unthinkable happens. Now, for us to appreciate the significance of the ark outside of grade 80 cinema, we have to really understand what its loss meant and what it represented in their relationship with God. The ark was a symbol of God's relationship with Israel. When God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, he called them into what we call a covenantal relationship. Now that's simply to say that when God made them his people, he set the terms on how they would operate as sinful people in relationship with him as their holy God. The uh, makeup of that relationship meant that both parties, both God and the nation of Israel, had responsibilities to keep. If they met those responsibilities, they would have blessings. If they didn't meet those responsibilities, they would have curses. The ark also held the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, and that served as a type of, like a treaty document that God gave them. And he said, place this in the ark, and this will be your reminder of the confines of my relationship with you. But the ark also revealed God's glory in two other significant ways. First, God promised them that the ark would be a place where he would meet them. You see, God promised that he would bring his glory into their midst. And the place that he would do that was above the cover of the ark, which he called the mercy seat. It was a gold covering that he had them create and place on the top of the ark. And God promised, my glory will be with you there in that place. And second, the ark also was a place where God told them that he would address the sins of the people. Every year, God commanded a priest to bring a goat, and the the goat would be slaughtered in the presence of the ark, and then the blood of the goat would be sprinkled on the seat. And this symbolized that God was accepting this as a temporary atonement or a way for them to amend for their sins. 
You see, God was using that as an illustration to teach them the spiritual reality of what it would mean for him to deal with their sins permanently. Now, we have to pause and think of what that meant in real time. What that means is that the God who created the heavens and the earth gave his people a way to know that his glory and his presence would be among them. He promised them that he would not only deal with their sins, their spiritual problem, but that his glory would be in their midst. The perfect, holy, righteous God of heaven promised his people that he would live with them even amidst their sinful behavior, their complaining, and their lack of gratitude. And doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> so what do they do with all that? They treat them like God in a box. They whip out the ark and they drag it into battle thinking they could force God's hand. Since God is so full of power and glory, if we drag him onto the battlefield, he'll win this battle for us. Now, a lot of times when we read these stories in Scripture, it's super comfortable for us to sit in the pews on a Sunday afternoon from a position of emotional and intellectual superiority and think, how in the world could anybody do that to God amidst all His grace? But you and I are probably not so unlike the Israelites on any given day of the week. You know, it's interesting when we're under pressure, we really find out what we're willing to put our trust in, don't we? I was shocked and appalled at myself this week at the amount of times that I unconsciously began to think, I really need to be disciplined spiritually this week. I really need to be praying hard so that God will bless this sermon. But who am I really thinking about when I think that way, right? I wasn't thinking about you. I wasn't even thinking about God. I was thinking about myself, right? We all, have our, we all have our own little mini arcs that we whip out like a rabbit foot in a pinch. And if you think about it, it drives a lot of our behavior when we don't pay attention. Whether it's praying more, deciding that we'll serve more, or simply just doing what we know is right by the Lord in day-to-day life. So we can feel like God is obligated to give us what we want and to do what we want him to do. The prospect of having a God that we can control and manipulate is very appealing. There is entire world religions that are predicated on that premise alone. But being continually exposed to sin like the Israelites were makes that kind of a proposition downright irresistible. And the same thing happens to us. You see, what we find here is that God is concerned with preserving his glory. He's concerned with that because he knows that his glory is not only good, but that his glory is good for us. It also shows us that God uses discipline to save you and I from the destruction of our sin. And that brings us to our second point, and that's that God's love and grace does exist in the midst of his discipline. You know, this chapter and the lesson that it gives us brings us face-to-face with a difficult spiritual reality, doesn't it? That's the fact that God is in fact holy and that he does have to deal with our sins. And a lot of times when we see that play out, not only in this story in 1 Samuel, but in our own lives or maybe even in the lives of others, we can quickly assume that God seems a little harsh at times in how he's dealing with people. But that's not really the case at all when we get behind the scenes. In 1 Samuel 2, if you remember, Hophni and Phinehas were the wicked priests that were stealing sacrifices and taking advantage of the women servants of the temple sexually. 
Likewise, if we look at their father Eli, his sins may seem more subtle because he, in fact, warned his sins of their wickedness. But you know, he always refused to do anything about that. He never acted. You know, this man's death is depressing. The text tells us that he's 98 years old, he's overweight, and he's blind. He's waiting on the side of the road to find out what's going to be the future of the nation of Israel and the ark. At the news of the ark being lost, he literally falls over and drops dead. But the description of his death gives us the reminder of why he's suffering those consequences. Two things in particular that are important for us to notice. First, the text says that Eli judged Israel for 40 years. Now think about that. He was the high priest for four decades. This man witnessed the holiness and the mercy of God for 40 years. And it never affected him enough to act. Furthermore, God sent him a warning in 1 Samuel 2.29. God says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? When Eli heard the bad news, he fell over and died on the spot. What killed him physically was his weight, but what killed him spiritually was the weight of the sins that made him grow so fat. Israel, for its own part, suffers the consequences of breaking the covenant that they had with the Lord. They experienced defeat at the hand of their enemies. Now, they didn't view that as just their own personal defeat. When they brought the ark, they truly believed that God would be compelled to protect his glory, and they were trying to manipulate him. And so when they saw the ark go into the hands of the Philistines, they thought that God was defeated also. Their one source of hope outside of themselves was lost. Now, we have to remember what God is doing in the midst of all this. God is not only fulfilling his promise that he would judge the wickedness of the priests and the people of Israel, but he's also acting in grace towards them. When he judges the wicked priesthood, what God's doing is he is freeing them from the people who led them astray in the first place. You see, when God protects his glory, a part of him doing that also means that he frees us from the sin that keeps us in bondage. You know, one of the things I've learned over the years is one of the most insidious effects of sin in our lives is how it skews our understanding of God and it blinds our ability to see what he's doing in our lives. And when we experience God's discipline, his faithful love in our lives, we begin to view it as acts of cruelty and coldness. But discipline is not an act of cruelty on God's part. It's actually the actions of a loving father. I mean, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now think about it. How many times has God taken something out of your life because he knew that you were depending on it more than him? I mean, that's a virtually universal experience for anybody who's been a disciple of Jesus Christ for any length of time. You know, when I was writing this sermon, this was such a difficult sermon for me to write this week, and I could not put my finger on it. I mean, there's any myriad of reasons that it usually is, my laziness, my distractions, all kinds of stuff. I had such a hard time writing this sermon this week, and then it dawned on me why that was today, is that when, when I hit the point of seeing that this is really about God dealing with sin and his discipline towards those he loves, it made me recall that I have had a profound experience with this in my own faith. 
I had a season in my own life where I was full of expectations that I had on God. I had a heart that was full of demands that I knew God had to meet for me because I decided that I was going to give my life to train and to serve him and to serve other people. And that filled me with a whole lot of spiritual pride and naive arrogance about who I thought I was. And I had a life filled with things that I thought validated that belief system. And so because God loved me so much, he began to persistently remove all of those things from my life one by one. And it was excruciatingly painful. And you know, the more I got angry and prayed, asking God to tell me why he did that, the more things were removed. And it felt so cruel. The more I prayed it, more it felt like God was absent in my life. And you know, eventually I just stopped praying because every time I prayed, something else would be removed. But you know what I failed to realize? I failed to realize that God was answering every single prayer through the form of discipline. God's answer to my prayer was the act of removing the things from my life that I worshipped more than I worshipped Him. But I couldn't see that then. You know, oftentimes, when God feels the most distant and the most aloof and the most unavailable to us, He's doing His greatest work in our life. The greatest work of restoration typically will happen during the most difficult times for believers. And oftentimes, the vehicle for that restoration that God uses is godly discipline of us. It's his love that disciplines us, not his abandonment. The reality is is that God loves you so much that he can stand your disappointment and your misunderstanding in what he's doing in your life. Think about that. That is a sturdy, faithful love that God tolerates our complaining, our raging in our hearts, our misunderstanding Him as He works out His good will for us, restoring us and freeing us from sins that keep us in bondage. What at first feels like God breaking our heart is usually in reality God performing spiritual heart surgery to heal our brokenness. That brings us to the third point. And that's that God is and always will be with us. You know, verses 19 through 22 seem like a bizarre close to this chapter. The wife of one of the wicked priests hears about the bad news, the fact that her husband has died, that her father-in-law has died, and most of all, that the ark has been lost. And she goes into traumatic labor pains. She names her son Ichabod. Now, this name has symbolic meaning, and it's her commentary on the inconceivable loss of the ark. Because the name literally means no glory or the glory has left. And in verse 22, she says, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You know, I read a commentator who made this offhand comment this week that was so awesome. He said, This woman taught more sound theology in her death than her husband taught in his entire life. Man, isn't that the truth? If you recall, when God, if God, when God called Israel into a covenantal relationship, what he did is he commanded them to build him a temple, a tabernacle. And he promised them that he would be in their presence there at the ark and that that would be his blessing to them. Now, if God's presence meant that that was his blessing on the people, then his absence also means that that was his curse, the curse of the covenant breaking on their part. 
And the Israelites did, in fact, break the covenant, and they deserved the consequences. The greatest consequence of all really should have been for them to be exiled from God's presence. But that's not what happens in this chapter, is it? God actually takes on the exile and leaves himself. And we see that in the ark's departure. In the following chapters, what we're going to see is that the ark actually goes into exile for the people. And we'll see that God actually conquers the enemies of his people. And his glory is actually made known to all the people in the land. We don't see this for a few chapters, but God eventually will return to his people. And his glory will be present again among the nation of Israel during the reign of a king named David. And this good king is a picture of an even greater king, one of his descendants, who offers an even greater hope for God's people. And that's where the name Ichabod really comes in for us. In this chapter, we see that Ichabod is a name given to a child who is born, and it means that God's glory and presence has departed from the people. Hundreds of years later, another child is born in unusual circumstances. In Matthew 1, we read of another child who is a descendant of David who is born, and with his arrival, an angel announces that he is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That child is Jesus. You know what John the Apostle says about him? He says that he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here at Ground Zero, we see in 1 Samuel 4 that God takes the covenant curse of his people and he goes into exile. Centuries later, Jesus, Emmanuel, is cut off from the presence of God in his crucifixion in the place of his people who deserved it. The result of that is that his crucifixion atones or makes amends for our sins permanently. No more sacrifice once a year. He does it once and for all. In saying his crucifixion is the permanent atonement for sin, Hebrews ten sixteen through 18 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So what does that mean for you and I as believers in the here and now? That means that because Jesus has paid for our sin, God now dwells with us by the Holy Spirit permanently. God's presence is with you forever. It also means that we never have to fear that God will cut us off from his glory or his presence. That will never happen to us. A wonderful example of that is every time we gather here to worship, we are in God's presence collectively together. When we are praying together, when we are singing together, when we hear the preaching of the word together, when we have the Lord's Supper together, we are standing in the midst of God's glory. And that is his promise to us because of what Christ has done to clear the path for us. What's even more amazing is what that means for your future. In painting a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelations 21, 3 through 4, says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, your greatest testimony is his glory being displayed through the public redemption of your life. And a major way that that happens is through his loving discipline of breaking you free from your sins. You have no greater testimony. You bring nothing else to the table except being a masterpiece for God to show the whole world. Because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, you and I can confidently walk with God, trusting that his discipline is not only good for his glory, but it's good for you and I. You know, it's funny, as I was considering this story this week that I noticed that every person in this story sees the glory of God at some point. The nation of Israel, the wicked priests, even the enemies of the nation of Israel, the Philistines, will see God's glory in the next couple of chapters. And you know, in the same way, every single person in this room will stand face to face with Jesus and see his glory one day. The question of what that will be like is determined on whether you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not. You see, the great reality that God promises every living person is that we will all stand face to face with Jesus in all his glory. And we can meet him as our Savior or we can meet him as our judge. If you meet him as your Savior, you do it on the merit that Jesus freely gives you through faith. If you meet him as your judge, you do it based on your good works and what you bring to the table. Our deepest hope and prayer here at Resurrection is that you see Jesus and meet him as your Savior, full of glory and grace. And that offer of peace with God through Jesus is available right now. The moment of salvation is available for you right now. Our deepest hope and prayer is that you will receive that by faith and have peace with God through his Son. And if you are already looking forward to meeting Jesus because he is your Savior, then let's continue to praise him for his unrelenting love of us, even in the midst of discipline. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your discipline, Lord. That's such a hard thing to say, and that's such a difficult prayer for us to pray, but we know that it is good because you teach us that through your word. You teach us that through how you act in our life, and you teach us that most of all through how you show us your love and your sacrifice for us through your Son. Father, I pray that as we walk away from reading this text of how you work amidst your people, that we would learn to walk with you and to trust you in the midst of every season of life especially the ones that are the most difficult, knowing that your discipline is for our good as well as your glory, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.